0: Podcast by students and their professors at the University of Oxford. In this episode, we will explore the intriguing world of language policy and its influence on the idea of nationhood in East Africa. I'm Sophia Herbert, a PPE undergraduate student at New College, and I'm here with Andrew Marshall, junior research fellow in politics at New College. With his first hand experience in Tanzania and extensive research there and in neighbouring Kenya, Andrew's research aims to unravel the contested meanings and interpretations of national language status and their impact on conceptions of nation in ethno-linguistically diverse societies. Hi, Andrew. First of all, welcome and thank you so much for joining us on Oxpods today. To begin with, how and why did you become interested in language policy as a research topic? Well,
1: thanks for inviting me, Sophia. I'm happy to be here with Oxpods. Language policy is something I've been interested in for quite a while, by language policy, mostly I'm thinking of the different rules and regulations um, that restrict or control which languages can be used in different contexts, such as what languages can be used in schools, uh, what languages can be used in parliament, on the radio, and other aspects of social life. The main way I got interested in language policy was after university, I was a volunteer with the Jesuit Volunteer Corps, And taught English for two years at a Catholic high school in northern Tanzania in East Africa, Um, and I was teaching English to students in our secondary school who were coming from the primary school, some of whom had been taught with English as the language of instruction if it was a private primary school, but most of whom had been taught with Kiswahili as the language of instruction if it was a state primary school. And this language switch for those students who had studied or had done Swahili as the language of instruction in primary school was very challenging for them because secondary school, both private and state schools, used English as the language of instruction. Um, And the national exams in secondary school in Tanzania are in English. So those students who had studied in state school were at a severe disadvantage later on in the system trying to catch up to their colleagues who had studied in private school using English as the language of instruction. So this got me kind of thinking about, well, why is this the case? This is an interesting policy. And having already studied politics and international affairs in undergrad, this got me thinking in terms of what are the politics behind this? Why is this the policy outcome in this system? And so as I went back for postgraduate studies after those two years, I remained very interested in questions of language policy, including the ways in which Kenya and Tanzania have made different choices uh, in their educational systems, about which languages to use.
0: So, Tanzania gained independence in 1961 and Kenya gained independence from, um, from England in 1963. Um, and they both have the same like, similar backgrounds in language. Given the apparent similarities, could you give us a bit of background on the nature of the divergence in the development of language policy between these countries and the implications of those policies?
1: Sure. So both Kenya and Tanzania have many languages that are spoken. Tanzania has more than 120 first languages that are spoken um, by its residents, and Kenya has more than 70, uh, including 44 that are more recognized, or, or more than 40 that are more recognized. And in both cases, as you point out, they were ruled by the British when they gained independence in the early 1960s. And in both countries to varying degrees, English and Kiswahili had different roles um, for facilitating inter-ethnic communication and communication between the colonial administration and the citizens. It is also the case though that they were not they did not have fully equivalent language policies even at independence. Particularly, one of the key differences that I explored in my master's research was between the German colonial rule in mainland Tanzania, Tanganyika, uh, which had been a German colony prior to the end of World War I, and in Kenya, where the British had been the colonial power since the 1890s. And in mainland Tanzania, the Germans used Kiswahili as the language of control to a much greater extent than the British had done in Kenya prior to World War I. And so it was only after World War I when the British found themselves in control of Kenya, mainland Tanzania, Zanzibar, and Uganda, that the British started promoting Kiswahili more systematically as a language for interethnic communication across eastern Africa. And so at independence, it was already the case that Kiswahili was more widely spoken as a second language in mainland Tanzania than was true in Kenya, even though Kiswahili was also the most spoken language there as well. And that divergence in the early 1960s um, has continued... In the, year, in the decades since, for the most part. Uh, what we see in general is that in Tanzania, Kiswahili is the dominant. It is recognized as a national language, and it is one of two official languages with English. In Kenya, officially, it's the same status, which is Kiswahili is the only recognized national language, and English and Kiswahili are both official languages. But what that actually means if we think about the different areas of public life where language is regulated is very different. In Kenya, in the educational system, for example, which is what got me started on this topic, English is the dominant language of the educational system all the way through as the language of instruction. Uh, Kiswahili is a required subject to be studied through secondary school. And in rural areas where a language other than English or Kiswahili is the first language of most of the students, teachers are allowed to use that first language in the first three or four years of primary school. Although in practice there's a lot of pressure from parents to use English right from the beginning. In Tanzania, although I talked a little bit about the private primary schools, the state primary schools which educate the vast majority of students use Kiswahili as the language of instruction through seventh grade with English as a mandatory subject, and then it's only in secondary school that that switches to something looking more like the Kenyan system, with English as the language of instruction, although a lot of code-switching in classroom teaching, and then Kiswahili as a mandatory subject. And generally, that pattern holds across most issue areas between Kenya and Tanzania, where Tanzania has promoted Kiswahili more broadly as the national language, uh, with some official recognition for English and very little official recognition for. The many other indigenous languages that most Tanzanians speak as their first language, whereas in Kenya, there is more official room for English, some space for Kiswahili to be used, and then also some more policy space allowing for official usage of the various other indigenous first languages, um, which again is not the case in Tanzania.
0: So you touched on this idea of the language of control um, and how the Germans use Kiswahili in this sense. Could you just explain or elaborate a bit more what you mean by this notion of the language of control?
1: Sure. So what happened in German East Africa, which would become Tanganyika, now mainland Tanzania, was that relatively early on, the German colonial administration decided to take advantage of the fact that the Kiswahili language was already relatively widespread geographically in their territory. It was not known by most people, but especially along the interior trade routes connecting uh, present-day Democratic Republic of Congo with the Indian Ocean, all along these trade routes there were at least some people, usually men, in the villages and towns who would know the Kiswahili language, and also Islam had already started to spread from the Kiswahili speaking civilizations of the Indian Ocean coast inland as well and many of the muslim converts also knew kiswahili and the missionaries the christian missionaries to a lesser extent sometimes used kiswahili Although they sometimes would use once they would learn the other local languages they would sometimes use those so the germans from the early 19 19- from the early 1900s onward required the use of kiswahili for most communications between the indigenous leaders um, who were working with them in the colonial administration, uh, the village headmen, the local chiefs, and the central uh, colonial administration. And this created a class of intermediaries who knew the Kiswahili language, who were able to write um, official communications in the Kiswahili language to a much greater degree than knew the German language or who knew how to write In the other indigenous languages, which were not favored um, by the German administration. And this was a different pattern from what happened in Kenya or Uganda, for example, where the British were much more hesitant to choose a single indigenous language um, to connect them to the various uh, colonial chiefs and colonial servants, partially because there were several larger ethnic groups. In Kenya and Uganda. And so this was a more politically fraught choice, and also to a lesser extent because the Kiswahili language had not yet penetrated as much in Kenya, and certainly not in Uganda, as it had in Tanganyika. So to some extent, the German policy differences were based on the underlying facts on the ground um, when German colonial rule began. But it's also the case then that this German policy dramatically change the sociolinguistic facts in Tanganyika in a way that did not happen um, in Kenya until the British belatedly adopted the German policy after World War One.
0: So then, given the colonial history of Kiswahili specific in Tanzania, what are the difficulties in translating the language into one that represents an independent state and in creating an independent national identity?
1: So this has been um, an interesting issue as well throughout both the late colonial period and independent period in Tanzania, especially because much of the early work for standardizing the key Swahili language was carried out by a British colonial committee uh, called the East African Swahili Committee, which was the subject of my master's thesis. And this, although there were some very important East African collaborators Uh, who worked with the committee. The key policymakers on this committee were British linguists and colonial officers who were using Western linguistic standards to try to take the organically developed language of Kiswahili with various dialects and form it into a standardized language. And so there was significant criticism at that time and to a lesser extent since that The language today known as standard Kiswahili does not fully reflect the richness of Kiswahili as it was before the Europeans standardized it. And so this led to some some criticism in the early independence period as well um, that perhaps the standardization should be redone or changed a bit, but ultimately what happened is for the most part the Tanzanian government and then the Kenyan government as well have built on this early colonial era standard Kiswahili, Swahili rather than trying to totally redo the system. And for the most part, for at least kind of from the government's perspective, I think standard Kiswahili has served them well as, as a language of instruction, as a relatively easy to learn simplified language um, for people to learn as a second or third language, which is somewhat different from the Kiswahili Swahili spoken by first language Kiswahili Swahili speakers on the Indian Ocean coast which retains more of the original vocabulary and grammatical complexity.
0: So given languages then firstly can act as a tool for control and a political tool, is it possible to produce solutions to the issue of multilingualism that we see in Kenya and Tanzania that aren't value-laden and that don't carry this sort of historical and colonial context?
1: I would argue the short answer to that question is no. Uh, While my own research and work fits more within... What we would call empirical comparative politics, it is also the case that even my own research is making certain assumptions about the trade-offs inherent in making these language policies, and in terms of proposing solutions or policy proposals, I don't think it is possible to do that without making some of these trade-offs inherent in any language policy. For example, you're always going to have a question of Um, simplicity and how many resources are going to be required for translating textbooks, um, providing interpretation for government events, distribution of government officials who know the languages that the people speak, um, in thinking about the trade-off between emphasizing one national language or recognizing multiple languages that might be spoken in different areas as the first language. In the same way, there are also trade-offs involved in emphasizing an indigenous national language such as Kiswahili, or a foreign former colonial language such as English, both in terms of how people think about their national identity, in terms of the opportunities for people to study overseas and engage in business opportunities with multinational corporations, and also in terms of engaging with people from neighboring countries as well. On all of these kinds of dimensions, there isn't a clear, or at least I would argue, there isn't a clear obvious answer of what the, quote, good, unquote, solution should be. Because before we can even get to discussing that, we have to make serious value judgments about the value of people speaking their first language, the value of communicating um, with a larger group of people, the value of communicating with the rest of the world, The importance of recognition versus efficiency and other related trade-offs. So I think this is one of the the more interesting aspects of debates about language policy, for me at least, that being that there aren't these clear answers and kind of this this fuzzy border between normative political theory and empirical comparative political research is particularly obvious um, and challenging I think with regards to language
0: policy. So I assume these value judgments have varied nation by nation and state by state. Could you discuss any specific examples of how differing conceptions of the nation and sovereignty have influenced post-independence language policy decisions?
1: So we've talked a bit about schools, but I think some of the clearer examples of this are actually in other other policy areas um, for language. And in both Kenya and Tanzania, Two of the clearest areas where the two countries have made very different decisions are in the language policy that governs language use in political campaigns and in the language policy that governs the use of languages in broadcast media. And in both of these cases, Tanzania has officially restricted most usage to Kiswahili and English, which in practice has usually meant Kiswahili, whereas Kenya has allowed for a much wider use of Kiswahili, English, and also the many other indigenous first languages. So what this means in practice is that since the 1965 general election in Tanzania, it has been illegal, at least in policy, if not always enforced, for a politician to campaign at a public rally using a language other than English or Kiswahili, even though this politician might be running for a parliamentary constituency where she and most of her constituents all share another common first language. Whereas in Kenya, it's very common for uh, parliamentary candidates to speak in a different indigenous first language other than Kiswahili Swahili when they are campaigning among their fellow co-ethnics who share the same first language. Similarly in broadcast media, In Tanzania, it is illegal for commercial radio and television to use a language other than English or Kiswahili. And there's only a very limited use exception for some community radio stations to use a different indigenous local language to reach the community. Whereas on the Kenyan side, there are television stations and radio stations in dozens of indigenous languages other than English and Kiswahili. And so I would argue that these two policies, um, and policymakers have told me as much in interviews I've conducted in the two countries, um, but that these two policies do reflect and in turn influence very different understandings of what it means to be Kenyan or Tanzanian, and the relative importance of Kiswahili, English, and the other indigenous first languages to national identity and national political and public life.
0: Your research methods have involved things such as interviews, archives research, and multi-sited ethnographic observations in both states. How do you think employing such a wide range of research methods has enhanced your findings, not only as a political scientist, but in informing these more normative judgments that you've had to employ?
1: So in general, I think that using a wide range of methods is good practice for most uh, questions in uh, comparative politics. Uh, Because rarely do I think one, one method or one set of methods is the single always best way to approach a question or gather data to learn more about the world. But particularly with the question of language policy, I think it's not clear what the one true best method would be. Because when we're talking about political debates about language policy and the relationship to how citizens identify with their nation or with their ethnic group or with their region. We're talking about a lot of interrelated factors. I'm interested very much in the historical development of language policy from from the colonial period um, up to the present in both countries. So archival documents are very important to me in terms of revealing part of the thinking behind colonial administrators and early post-colonial leaders on the language policies and kind of internal debates um, among bureaucrats about which policy to employ and why and who was submitting complaints about these policies. I'm also very interested in what the formal language policies are. So the texts of current laws, past laws, constitutions, these are also very important to me. But we know that even knowing the formal text of language policy doesn't tell us what people think about these language policies, doesn't tell us the extent to which they're actually enforced in practice, and it doesn't necessarily tell us how these policies are changing or being changed by the societies in which they operate. And so for me, it's also been very important to interview people who are involved in language policy. This can be formal policy makers, um, such as the team at the National Swahili Council in Tanzania that continues to set aspects of state language policy and the formal standards of standard Kiswahili for Tanzania. But it also means interviewing people on the ground, we might say it, immediately implementing language policy, such as teachers of English and Kiswahili in both countries, as well as interviewing ordinary citizens, politicians, uh, radio presenters, all of these different people uh, who are involved in some sense in making, implementing, or thinking about language policy. And so this has generally been, been very helpful to me. And then similarly, ethnographic observation is also helpful in terms of just allowing me to, in my daily life in these countries, to see what languages are used around me in public transportation, in the signage in government offices, in the signage in private businesses, uh, in the newspapers, in the radio and television programming that I'm seeing, on social media, um, just to get a different aspect of what's going on with language use and language policy, and the ways in which um, language use and language policy interact with each other.
0: So given the distinction between the, you could almost say, de jure and de facto effects of language policy um, that you've observed, what do you think the implications of these case studies are for policymakers and researchers interested in nation building in ethno-linguistically diverse societies, not just limited to East Africa?
1: Perhaps this is a, a more difficult question to answer, um, in this, particularly in the sense that, although, as I've said, my empirical research is very much tied up with normative questions, I generally myself try to shy away from making too many normative value judgments, because I'm really more interested in what the policymakers and ordinary citizens themselves think about the current language policies, how, how they view these policies' effects, what they express as the benefits or disadvantages of these policies in their daily life, and what would be the perceived effects of possible changes. That being said, I think one of the important aspects of my work that hopefully is helpful for policymakers is the importance of engaging with the broader public in thinking about language policy and really questioning some of these older ideas, which have mostly fallen out of favor with sociolinguists, although not always with politicians, that top-down language planning or language policy planning can totally remake society Um, just by changing the letter of the language policy. And I think some of my more interesting uh, research experiences have been in interviews or in observation when people are telling me things or people are acting in ways that are very much at odds with what the formal top-down policy is. And I think this should lead us to question always, or at least this should, this should lead us to recognize that the ability of national level policymakers to unilaterally and uniformly impose a language policy and re-engineer society is very limited. And to the extent it exists, it's a very long-term process that only occurs in interaction with localized resistance or acceptance and the tensions that already exist within society. Um, so perhaps in some ways that's Maybe a dissatisfying uh, takeaway, but I think my main takeaway would be to be very cautious about trying to use language policy as, say, a a blunt tool of nation building, as was proposed more often in the early post-independence period in many countries.
0: Brilliant. That, was, that kind of ties into my final question, which I know it's a tall ask because we've talked about such a wide range of effects, but could you give us a one-liner summary of your findings on language policy and the nation in East Africa?
1: Well, I think if I had to boil it down to, to one line, which of course uh, scholars nev- ne- never like to do, um, I think it would be something along the lines of, over the course of Kenyan and Tanzanian history, the, le- the state language policies have both reflected and influenced different understandings of what it means to be Kenyan and Tanzanian. Um, and that process uh, continues to develop today.
0: Brilliant. Thank you so much for coming on Oxpods today. I've really enjoyed having you on here and I've learned so much.
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of Oxpods. If you enjoyed it, please do recommend to a friend and check out our episodes from other channels too. To keep up to date with episode releases, to suggest ideas for new episodes, or to get involved with recording, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or go straight to our website at www.oxpods.co.uk.